As was mentioned earlier, we are indeed thankful, each of us, for the opportunity that's been given us to assemble and to do so for the express purpose of offering worship unto our great God in heaven. In Psalm 89, verse 7, the great psalmist on that occasion still so exultingly said, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. We do, in fact, look forward to those times of a special reverence in which we're gathered like this to make sure that we do those things pleasing unto Him. And tonight, as we give thought to the lesson before us, Certainly, I'd like to take just a moment and again express a special thanks for those men who so capably and ably delivered some penetrating and fantastic lessons. So thankful for all the men who here at the Pippin Congregation seem excited to utilize their talents in the way their elders see fit and so excited also to be a part of a congregation in which that can so readily take place. Advice for answering. Is that particular title probably is at this point sufficiently vague that it's a bit challenging to know where or what direction that we may in fact be moving with it. But I would hope that over the next moment or two, these introductory thoughts might well settle in our thinking the way in which we'll develop this lesson. You know, and I as well, that as human beings, part of that which is our lot is to interact with other people, be it our spouse, our children, our parents, our co-workers, our neighbors, others that you and, and I perhaps on the job would interact with, be they students, customers, patients, or otherwise, we understand so well that quite often, on many occasions a day, we interact with others. We answer their questions. We oftentimes ask them questions. On occasion, though, the circumstances come before us that poses an especial challenge. Sometimes those interactions bring before you those matters at the bottom. Sometimes information is positive in its nature and perhaps sharing that comes naturally. Other times that information may have a negative bent to it and quite often describing that or challenging it may be much more difficult for us to know how to do. Sometimes when we're challenged in particular ways, we respond hastily, often with great emotion and sometimes we later regret what we said. We wished we'd never said it, or maybe we wish we hadn't said it the way that we said it. I'm sure all of us at some time or another even have been in that circumstance, or we have witnessed others who were. I wonder if the Bible has any information about helping us know how to answer when we are in those situations. How might we know best how to re react and do so, so that... We do so with the best possible outcome. I hope tonight we can use much from the book of Proverbs to assist us in that way. To do so, might we begin in the following consideration. Advice for answering a matter. Let's begin by observing this interesting piece of information. In fact, it's the very one that Jeremy read for us just a moment ago. In Proverbs 18 verse 13, You'll notice I have, in fact, written it there at the top just so we can all again appreciate the statement. But the inspired writer said, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. You'll notice that if one then replies, responds, reacts before understanding the circumstance in its entirety, appreciating and comprehending that which has been asserted, 
then it might not be that surprising that the answer is inappropriate. It's directed in a way that does not seek to really answer what it was that was inquired. The inspired writer again said, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it. It might do us well to think about the language that's been employed. You'll notice the word hear. That doesn't literally mean to have sound waves fall upon one's ear and thus excite one's eardrum. That's not the way that that word hear is to be used there, and it's not the meaning of it. As you can see, that word hear, it means to perceive. It means to understand. That's the meaning of the Hebrew verb as it's presented in that passage. You and I are thus being told if we answer something before we've understood it, if we reply before we've comprehended it, then you'll notice the inspired writer affirmed that makes a circumstance that's both a shame and folly to us. You'll notice those other words perhaps are worthy of definition as well. That word folly. The Bible often makes use of that word as it relates so directly to foolishness. As it relates to pursuing something in which the nature of soundness is not in it. How often have you or I witnessed events like this? Someone hears something, they answer, replying, often so negatively before they've understood the fullness of what was said and before they have in fact pondered over what the best course of response would be. Maybe you or I have often been in that circumstance. Especially that's true when a particular subject is very passionate to us. Someone shares something with us, and even before we have thoroughly appreciated what was said, we reply with emotion, we reply often with language and with words and with actions that we later recognize really weren't appropriate because what we understood was not what the person said. It was not what they intended to convey. Beyond all that, you'll notice the inspired writer seems to be encouraging us, Solomon, to appreciate a circumstance and to do so thoroughly before we answer. What wise advice. There have been times in my own life, especially I recall in graduate school, in which there were circumstances that would never have been the problems they were if only this had been followed be they my advisors or others with whom I worked, and they would pursue matters by choosing to answer before they understood what I or others were saying, it led to nothing but problems, it led to nothing but wastefulness, and it led to nothing but disagreeableness between individuals. It never had to be that way. Isn't it also true that such a matter can even describe a congregation, or yea, any organization of people? It's important, isn't it, to appreciate, to listen carefully, and to understand prior to answering. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, maybe one example is highlighted before us in Job 38 verse 2. Here we find this impressive scene. Throughout the character of that book, Job, of course, had found himself in very difficult circumstances. He had lost, of course, the bulk of his possessions, even his family members, it seems so often, including his wife, was not supportive of him. In fact, his children had died. And yet, in his attempt to maintain a degree of credibility, and in his attempt to remain at least in a position in which he still didn't fully understand, the time did come in Job 38 too, when God challenged him that he would not speak without knowledge. 
He thus accused Job throughout that book, You have had the nerve to assert things of which you had no knowledge. And isn't that still dangerous? When a person speaks having not the knowledge, having not the wisdom or experience, there Job was in fact severely rebuked by God on that occasion. Perhaps you and I can see too how that difficulties can arise when we strive to answer before understanding. So perhaps you and I as Christians can take an interesting lesson and in our interactions with others to seek first to understand, to comprehend and perceive prior to crafting a reply. That's not the only advice the inspired writer gives us. Also in this book, consider this one. Proverbs 29, verse number 20. Go a few, a few chapters forward with me and let's read as we notice the inspired statement of that passage. Verse number 20 says, again in Proverbs 29, Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? There is more hope of a fool than of him. We now notice yet another thing that can often be a matter of problem. There are individuals who perhaps have a shorter fuse. They are more prone to temper, aren't they? They're more prone to exceedingly rapid and hasty reply. And often that's filled with emotion, quite often prompted by a passionate reply. Often with language and words that are perhaps strongly rebuking, perhaps reproving, often filled with a strong element of negativity. I wonder if we might revisit, though, for the next few moments, Proverbs 29, 20. Seest thou a man that is hasty in his words? That word hasty, as you can see, it means to be pressed. It means to be hurried. This individual has, in fact, hurriedly given a reply, maybe without thoroughly comprehending all the evidence, all of the knowledge, all the factors that may perhaps factor into it, but at any rate, has replied with hastiness. Isn't it amazing, the inspired writer says, there is more hope of a fool than for him. You'll notice again the word fool is employed, highlighting one that has chosen the pathway of folly, one that has pursued the pathway that is not in accordance to the wisdom or evidence. You'll notice again that God's Word says it's not wise to act this way. And yet how often in our world do you and I seemingly evidence it? Maybe you have worked with others or known others or been involved in activities with others and they were so quick to reply, so hasty in their answer. Sometimes they were wise and sometimes the answer was appropriate, but more often than not, maybe, at least far more often than one would hope, that course of action that was discussed was not, in the, in the final analysis, the best. It is for those reasons I would invite you to notice some of these statements. Being too quick to answer. One of the things that perhaps you and I have often been so willing to appreciate in the lives of others, maybe it was a grandfather, or maybe it was a father, maybe it was an uncle, or some other individual you knew who seemingly always had his words under strong control. Upon hearing something, he would ponder, pause, consider, reflect, and study, and only then would he give an answer. I think we've all come to admire individuals like that, who they never spoke out of turn, at least due to hastiness. They always were much more willing to ponder and contemplate 
and only with the proper consideration would they answer. Those kind of considerations lead us to note the advice of the sacred Word of God relative to that point. In the opening chapter of the book of James, in verses 19 and 20, there James said, "...let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God." Notice again the order. Let every man be quick to hear. You and I noticed earlier the advice relative to that point, to understand and listen carefully. But then he said, slow to speak. I suppose one of the temptations each of us face is hasty answers. Answering too quickly without all the evidence and all the character of the Word of God before us. You'll notice there that often those words can lead to wrath perhaps to some element of anger in some way. We're admonished to be slow to those things, aren't we? What about you and I tonight? How quick are you? Do you speak very quickly and so often perhaps find yourself later regretting what you spoke? It may be in light of that that these words are given to all of us as a strong endorsement of challenge, aren't they? Beyond that example in James chapter 1, what about that episode of Peter himself? I suppose all of us have already thought a bit about Peter in light of this lesson. Being quick to answer, of all the apostles, wasn't he seemingly always the one that was quick to answer? Quite often in the Lord's conversations, in the Lord's asking of questions, it was Peter that would be the first to answer. Oftentimes, admittedly, his answer was filled with faith, it was filled with encouragement, and it was filled with a strong element of what was true. But sometimes he was caught later in those words, maybe none better than that saga of Mark 14. In that chapter, what was it that Peter was quick to reply? Jesus had just made this statement, All of you will flee because of me this night. As he and his apostles were therein enjoying so far the events of that evening, the circumstances surrounding what would ultimately involve the, the Lord's Supper and the institution of it, that walk that would lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane? You'll recall that on the course of that walk, wasn't it Jesus who said, All of you will be offended because of me this night? Who was it that was the first to reply? Peter. He said, Though all the others will be offended, I will not be. I think perhaps Adam shared some thoughts concerning things touching that subject in his lesson some two weeks ago. As he did that, we were each able to appreciate the thoroughness and profoundness. Thirty verses later, although it was the case, Peter had said, though the others will be offended or the others may even flee, I will never flee, even if it costs my life. And yet, thirty verses later, he had denied the Lord not once, not twice, but thrice. And in that instance, the cock crew, the Lord looked at him from a distance, and he went out and wept bitterly. You see, his words, so filled with faith and power, found that under the duress of circumstances in the wee hours of that morning, he too regretted what he had done. Isn't it amazing in light of all of that, maybe we appreciate that God, of course, is very interested in you and me being very faithful to our promises. Very faithful, certainly, to our promises, especially, of course, to Him. In Ecclesiastes 5, verse number 2, each of us are warned, as was from the words of Solomon in that Old Testament era, Be not rash with thy mouth, neither be hasty with thy words. 
What did Solomon mean by that? Later in the verse, he replies and he answers, For be sure that you're faithful to what you promised to the Lord. When you and I make promises to Him, He expects us to be true and faithful to them. Doesn't that remind us of the importance of that confession that's made prior to baptism? When a person out of the fullness of heart says, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, may that always be the directive until death. And yet sometimes unfaithfulness or apostasy fills the life of others. You'll notice that we've learned two interesting lessons to help us so far. As you and I have looked at these... Notice a third one. This hastiness maybe prompts us to consider yet this one as well. The element of destructiveness. Isn't it true, and I at least mentioned this in passing earlier in the lesson, but isn't it true sometimes that word quickly spoken, that phrase quickly spoken can often be so destructive to those that hear it. It often may put a dividing line, a point of contention, a point of division, if you will, so that never again can a friendship like what was formerly enjoyed be the case. That does paint a picture of just how serious it can be to answer, to answer too hastily, to answer in such a way before hearing the matter. Let's develop this thought a little bit more thoroughly by using the language before us. In Proverbs 13, verse number 3. Proverbs 13, 3 reads as follows. He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life, but he that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. He that openeth wide his lips shall have destruction. When we speak in a way that's out of turn, when we speak in a way that doesn't follow the advice of these lessons we're learning this evening... It may well be that that which flows forth from our lips is so filled with destruction, harming those that we would never wish to do, and leading them again to be divided from us in a way that will be so hard to overcome. Let's develop that thought this way. Especially it would seem when our response is fraught with emotion, when it is so passionate and filled with what is so important to us, but yet we speak in a way that isn't based on knowledge or wisdom, those words can be so filled with hurt. Consider the destructiveness in some of the examples you'll notice later on that slide. Maybe one great one in the Old Testament is in the ninth chapter of Joshua. You may remember with me that there the children of Israel had already begun to come into the land of Canaan under the leadership of Joshua as they were conquering the cities of that land and beginning to settle therein, God had given to them a very special and directive command. You are to destroy those that are in that land, chasing them out if need be, but you are not to cohabit or dwell with them. That included intermarriage, but it also included merely allowing them to remain in the land. In Joshua chapter 9, we come face to face with a group of people who had a very subtle and very crafty approach. They, in fact, were tricky. Here's what they did. They, in fact, were the people of Gibeon, which was a very low location right in the midst of the land of Canaan. They didn't come from a far distance, but what they did is put on old clothes. They took moldy bread, and they took, in fact, wine that had gone bad. 
And they came before the children of Israel and said, We have come from a very long distance. When we left, our bread was hot, but now it's moldy. Our wine was new, but now the, the uh, vessels have burst. The clothes that we put on were fresh then, but now look at them. Giving the impression they'd traveled from an exceedingly great distance. And they said, We'd like to make a compact, an agreement, a covenant with you. Joshua and the elders of Israel listened intently to what they said, and first they were cautious. They said, how do we know you've come from a far distance? The only evidence that these Gibeonites offered, look at our clothes, look at our bread, look at the things we've brought. Doesn't it look old? And the text says the children of Israel made a covenant with them without consulting God. They were hasty, too hasty. They didn't consider the matter thoroughly. They didn't proceed to consider it in the light of wisdom. And might I ask, did that lead to any destructiveness on the part of Israel? These people stayed in the land with them because by virtue of their agreement, they were unwilling to destroy them. Later, wasn't it true, this very people was an eyesore to the children of Israel. They, in fact, were such that as they intermarried with them, what a problem it brought about. The destructive that came about from haste. We're reminded in Philippians 4, 8 that we and I, you and I should, of course, pursue and seek. Think on things that are true and honest and pure and just and lovely and of good report. As we think on things like that, doesn't it tie in rather interestingly with not speaking then too rashly? not speaking too out of turn in such a quick fashion with destructiveness. Oh, the regret that sometimes might be brought in that very idea. Wasn't it James who reminded us in James 3 verse 2 that if any man stumble not in his tongue, then that man can be considered pure man. I might invite you to think of how easy it is to stumble in what we say. You and I speak thousands of words every day. Some more than others, admittedly, but all of us speak thousands of words every day. Do we use those words correctly? Do we use them in a positive way to endorse what's noble and good and right? Or do we let too many of them slip out? Like the lesson tonight that's hurtful, harmful, destructive, too hasty, and does not push forward the boundaries of God's kingdom. You'll notice finally on that slide an unforgettable warning from Jesus Himself. Near the close of Matthew chapter 12 and verses 36 and 37, Jesus reminded us there about the nature of words and their appearance at the judgment. Did He not say that every idle word shall be given account thereof in the day of judgment? For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Let's reflect that briefly and notice that if it's true, and surely it is, because the Bible informs us so. But every idle word will give account thereof. If that's true, then what should we say about those words that are overtly destructive? Those words that are improper in that regard? Oh, how careful should be our language. Perhaps finally, as we look at this remaining lesson, the last one, the fourth one that we'll consider, this one also drawn from the book of Proverbs. Let's read Proverbs 29, 11, and then make a statement about the subject before us. Proverbs 29, verse number 11. 
A fool uttereth all his mind, but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. That seems to be pointing out so directly, doesn't it? The very lesson at the top of this slide. That there is a proper time sometimes to share information. You and I might be apprised of things and it might be exceedingly valuable and important to share it, make it known to others, maybe even in a reproving way or corrective fashion. But there are better times to share sometimes that information than others. It takes an element of discernment, doesn't it? Sometimes the circumstance, the situation just isn't best for sharing it. It may only lead to more problems. It may only lead to greater misunderstanding. It may only lead to more difficulties. But if we were to wait perhaps a little while and share the same thing, it might be far better received, far better put into practice, and far better toward making that circumstance develop the way that would be best. That whole idea, of course, is a challenging matter. But how important it is sometimes to give serious thought to timing. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. I've often thought that surely is one of the most poetic verses in all of Proverbs. A word fitly spoken. You'll notice that adverb fitly means properly. That which is fittingly or becomingly. It may well be right to say, but there could be a best time. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in pictures of silver. As you and I think about apples of gold... And as we think about them placed in an ornamental picture of silver, how attractive, how appropriate, and how usable. Sometimes our words are not quite so healthy, are they? Maybe our timing isn't always best. We say things at the wrong time. And so it often doesn't have nearly the effect and impact it could have. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide, sometimes there are moments that are more teachable than others. We as parents know that well, don't we? Our sons and our daughters, we love them and we want them to learn what is the best and what, of course, is always the right thing. Sometimes due to their mental state, all times are not equally teachable. But on those times that are teachable, how sweet it is, how profound it can be, how far-reaching can be the impacts when they are excited to listen and we are helpful to teach. Sometimes our co-workers and others, of course, can also be in the same circumstance. At the bottom, I've again asked us to think about some verses that maybe encourage us along this line as well. In Ecclesiastes 3 verse 7, there's a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. At times it's difficult to know from our own human perspective when is each but surely the inspired writer tells us there is a time on occasion to be silent. Now he doesn't say to be silent permanently, but maybe the time will come shortly thereafter, in the next day or perhaps the next week, for we can share that information when it will have the impact and it will accomplish the great good that it should. But maybe that moment is not the best. Maybe that person is crumbling beneath a load of duress. Maybe that person is that day having a particularly bad day in such a way that the idea simply wouldn't be absorbed. It wouldn't be understood by them in the way we'd hope. Maybe that kind of thing would be better to wait till later in the day or maybe tomorrow. 
Beyond that, might we appreciate Ephesians 4.26. Be ye angry and sin not. Reminding us that it may be these kind of circumstances that you and I can, certainly in the lives of those we love, we can understand that maybe this time isn't best. It will only lead to heightened anger. It will only lead to heightened difficulty. When we know that if we wait for a better time, a more opportune time, that it would not lead so and wouldn't lead to the difficulties that it otherwise might. That statement of Ephesians 4.26 perhaps should be quickly utilized to help us at least appreciate this. It would seem, based on the New Testament presentation of these matters, that when it comes to someone who is in error, whose eternal destiny hangs in the balance, that we ought not wait. It never seemingly is a poor time to help them try to see the truth and to help them appreciate what their soul so desperately needs. Galatians 2, for instance, verse number 11 it was on that occasion that Paul confronted Peter to the face because he was to be blamed. Here, some might argue this wasn't the best time. Here, after all, was an ambassador from a distant congregation who had come and who did so for the express purpose of encouraging and building up. You might think with visitors around, this wasn't the best time to correct him. Paul didn't wait. Too much hung in the balance. Peter was to be blamed. He was wrong and he needed, in fact, to be corrected. And so too did those who were in the audience so that they wouldn't think that his activities were acceptable. So you and I might see that when someone is in error, and of course that means that their soul is being weighed in the balance, we should find a tactful way and an appropriate way to hopefully share that as soon as possible. Perhaps yet another example... Mark chapter 8, verse 33. That one, of course, arriving and giving us additional consideration toward that very same point. How lovely it is to give thought to sometimes when we give thought to these matters. Maybe the example of Job 13, 5 is the final one we'll notice on that slide. You might recall that Job's friends, when they came to him, they learned that Job was in a very difficult situation. Again, as we noted earlier, he had lost his children. His wife was no encouragement to him. In fact, we even learned that as he had lost his cattle, his possessions, and all the things that surrounded him, including his own liveliness and health, three friends came to Job. Now you and I would at that point think this was a wonderful thing. Friends who loved him, appreciated him, and who wished to be there to support him. Have you ever noticed in Job 13 verse number 5 that something is said about these friends? They didn't always say the things they should have. They didn't always appreciate the nature of what Job was experiencing because they didn't have the faith he did. And also we notice that when they spoke oftentimes Job had to correct them. It is in those, those matters that I would ask us to review briefly these lessons that we have seen this evening. Answering a matter, giving advice to you and me as to how to answer something has been the, our thrust and our topic tonight. We've learned four lessons that might be summarized as follows. Based on Proverbs 18, 13, listen carefully and try to understand before we answer too hastily. 
And then we notice from Proverbs 29, 20, Be not too hasty in our answer, but always again ponder, contemplate, so that we can make sure to understand. In the third place, we notice Proverbs 13, 3, to at least be apprised and to consider that destructiveness that can come from too hasty an answer. And then finally from Proverbs 29, 11, that it may be best on that occasion not to speak that matter at all. Maybe it's best to wait, to properly discern the moment, and to share it at a later time. I trust that as we've at least been reminded of some of these thoughts, it can help us daily to be better fathers and mothers, husbands and wives, those who deal in their daily walks in life. Because apparently Solomon recognized all these things and the Holy Spirit saw fit to include them in the writings of the Old Testament. As we close the lesson tonight, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Golden advice that all of us can take to heart and recognize truly as a part of the statements of God, both Old and New Testament alike. Tonight, as we give thought to those commandments of the Word of God, Certainly, the first thing that can be said about using our language correctly is you need to be a Christian. For then, you can have Christ at your side in a proverbial fashion, helping you, encouraging you, assisting you day by day. He promised, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee, Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. If you aren't a Christian, you don't know the power of having the Lord with you. Wasn't it true that the psalmist said, I have been young and I am old. Yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Proverbs 37, 25, or rather Psalm 37, 25. Tonight, if you aren't a Christian, why not take care of that missing aspect of your life, the greatest thing of all you haven't yet attended to? The plan of salvation is before us like this. Believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His great name as the Messiah, the promised one, and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in that tonight, we would be delighted to do so. If you have been a faithful follower of the Lord's, but you no longer are, maybe you've brought public reproach upon the church in part by what you've spoken. Maybe you in haste have said things to others and you know that was not good. Why not ask them for forgiveness? Why not ask your Father in heaven for forgiveness? And there'll be no better time than even right now to do that at once while together we stand and while we sing.